April 20th, 1912, Saturday, aboard the cable ship Mackay Bennett, Atlantic Ocean, the Grand Banks, 600 miles from Nova Scotia. As night falls, Captain Lardner informs me, we should be among the wreckage soon. Better sleep now while you still can, Mr. Snow. The sun will be up soon enough. Yes, I think. The sun will always come up, even after the entire ship of humanity has struck its berg and sunk. The sun will rise. Good night, Captain Lardner, I say. Good night, sir. Rest well, he replies. Later that night in my berth below, I hear the ship's engines finally quit. Silence fills the dark, and I know we have reached the spot where Titanic foundered. They are out there in the water, the bodies, among the debris. My name is John Snow. You could say that my living is death. I am the undertaker. I have come for the bodies. If you can believe it, this passage is not real. Well, it's complicated. John R. Snow Jr. was, indeed, one of the embalmers aboard the ship the Mackay Bennett, the vessel employed by the White Star Line to search for the bodies at the Titanic's wreck site. At 12.35 p.m. on Wednesday, April 17, 1912, the ship left Halifax Harbor, loaded with tons of ice poured into every available hold and 100 plain wooden coffins. Snow was the chief embalmer for an undertaking firm in Nova Scotia, one that bore his father's name. We have a couple of photographs of him, one in which he's literally sewing up canvas bags of bodies, another in which he is dressed to the nines with a vest and a watch chain, but stands posed in front of a stack of coffins. We don't know a lot about his emotions, how he truly felt about the dead bodies he handled daily, how he felt about the Titanic bodies. There isn't some real journal from him to mine for this information. The passage that I read above is from a wonderful, stunning 2011 novel by Alan Wolfe called The Watch That Ends the Night, in which he recreates the entire tragedy of Titanic through a series of narrated verse in the voices of its passengers, its crew, and in the case of Snow, even those who walked right into the sinking's aftermath. Wolf Snow is an amalgam of the embalming crew, an amalgam of this body-gathering crew. So he's fiction. But is he? I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is episode six, Titanic in Fiction, with special guest Chelsea Picard. the mirrors meant to glass the opulent. The sea worms crawled, grotesque, slimed, dumb, indifferent. Jewels in joy designed to ravish the sensuous mind. 
lie lightless, all their sparkles bleared and black and blind. Dim, moon-eyed fishes near, gaze at the gilded gear, and query, what does this vaingloriousness down here? That's Thomas Hardy, writing about the sinking in a poem called The Convergence of the Twain, which he wrote right away in 1912. From the moment of the tragedy, people have been writing about it. The ocean a character, the iceberg a character, the ship certainly a tragic one in itself. In just a bit, I'm going to bring you an interview with Chelsea Pinkard, a blogger and truly, guys, an expert on modern Titanic fiction. She lives in Australia, and we had a fantastic call last week that ran into the night (laughs) for me because we honestly chatted like old friends, even though we have never met before in person. The instantaneous bond of a shared Titanic obsession is very strong, as I'm sure a lot of you out there also know. And the points that she makes about the value of historical fiction, about the interpretation of Titanic by modern writers, as I was editing the interview, I was floored by them, by these points she makes. And I was in the conversation. So I'm going to let you hear that entire interview in just a bit. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the history of Titanic in fiction before the period that she and I focus on, which is pretty much the last couple of decades is what she and I speak about. In researching this episode... I quickly discovered that it's difficult to draw the line between fiction and nonfiction when it comes to Titanic. It disappears fast, this line. It's made of sand. There's a perpetually muddled middle instead, and this episode didn't follow some straight literary history line that I wanted it to. Even for historians, the lines between fact and fiction blur on that night of April 14th, 1912. It's hard to discern an absolute fact in the chaos of the Titanic timeline, and we've already talked a little bit about that on this podcast. A lot of the evidence, or what we call evidence anyway, is from oral history interviews conducted years, sometimes decades after the fact. For even survivors, the lines blur because memory is such an elusive creature. Some firsthand accounts, particularly ones given years later, contain bits that we know to be errors. Jack Thayer, a very well-known first-class passenger, he clung to the overturned collapsible alongside Officer Lightoller, and he was 17, Jack Thayer was, at the time. In his memoir, written years later, he recounts boarding Titanic in the wrong city, in the city he did definitively did not board in. But for the purposes of this discussion, what I talk about moving forward in this episode are the works about Titanic that are definitively marked fiction. I would say that the first component of this conversation is defining what historical fiction even is. It's a broad category, certainly, but generally speaking, it's something that's said in the past some era, some specific historical moment, and it attempts to set you down into that time, that moment, through either characters who are completely made up or through the fictionalization of real historical figures by literally putting words into their mouths. There's a questionable line there 
many critics believe, and Chelsea and I touch on this debate a bit in our discussion, but this is a genre that falls often under critique. To give you an origin story for historical fiction would take me a year, two years, and even then I wouldn't have a clear thesis. I'm embarrassed by how fundamental this summary will be, but for our purposes today, it will have to suffice. Historical fiction is a fairly contemporary term, but as a concept, it's been around for literally ages, especially in world literature. Some Chinese narratives of the 14th century, for example, are actually set in the 3rd century. Classical Greek novelists wrote about the past all the time. But the roots of what we understand as modern historical fiction, and keep in mind, my research is based in English-speaking cultures, I recognize that limitation, certainly up front. But in the ni- early 19th century, it the roots of this modern historical fiction are notably in the works of Scottish author Sir Walter Scott, whose books used a historical setting to dramatize and analyze the development of society through conflict. To create a narrative that's educational in some ways, but also more importantly, digestible, we humans, we like our narratives linear, don't we? And we like them spotted with events that explain why we are the way we are. By the mid-1800s, you've got British authors seeping deep into this style. William Makepeace Thackeray, exploring the Napoleonic Wars in Vanity Fair, Charles Dickens' The French Revolution in A Tale of Two Cities. In the United States, it was James Fenimore Cooper, whose most famous work, The Last of the Mohicans, set in 1757 during the French and Indian War, brought a chronicle of France and Great Britain's battle for control of North America to a general reading audience. This was a huge deal. Cooper's rival, John Neal, wrote what is considered the first novel about the Salem witch trials in 1828, a book called Rachel Dyer. I mean, just think about how many novels have been set in Salem during the witch trials since, beginning, of course, with Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter in 1850, just a couple of decades later. But that's an entire niche onto itself that we could sit here and talk about. In France, there's Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Alexander Dumas's The Three Musketeers, of course, which we think of as these absolute classics and not so much as examples of historical fiction, but they categorically absolutely are historical fiction. There definitely seems to be a group of classics that stay elevated because of their pedigree in this category that we sort of keep off to the side, apart from more modern attempts at historical fiction. But whether it's uber-literary or pulpy, as some of what Titanic inspires is, it's all historical fiction, which boiled down is this attempt really to put ourselves into a moment in history. And I'll be blunt, Titanic works often fall into that second crevice, a weird crevice. It's been used for genre, for works perceived as kitsch, which is odd if you think about it for too long, right? Given the horror of it as a tragedy. Even back in 1912, so many books, pamphlets, sermons, poems, letters to the editor, you name it, 
were published in the immediate aftermath that the editor of the New York Times actually took to a warning, quote, to write about the Titanic takes more than paper, pen, and a feeling that the disaster was a terrible one. So I understand the criticism. Sometimes it's very much warranted. And even if it's not completely a question of literary quality, fictionalization often serves as a questionable tool of complete cultural redefinition, a complete hijacking of history, as was the case with Margaret Tobin Brown, known now to so many as the unsinkable Molly Brown, when she was featured in a book by a failed taxidermist turned journalist turned popular historian named Jean Fowler. This book was called Timberline. I could not find a copy of it, sadly. And at this point, it's 1933 when this book comes out, notably the year after Margaret Brown died. Before then, as many historians have since pointed out, Margaret was a minor legend in the Titanic story, but nothing in the way of how she would become just irrevocably tied to it in popular culture after the 1930s. Fowler, notorious at one point for interviewing Buffalo Bill Cody about his salacious, uh, the salacious events of his life, wrote Brown as a woman born of hard-drinking frontier stock who fished alongside Mark Twain, and swam naked in creeks, and rode rapids in a barrel, that sort of thing, and eventually made it to the mining town of Leadville, Colorado, to marry Johnny Brown, who in this narrative burns up a huge chunk of their fortune by setting fire to a stove that his wife, Margaret, Molly, hid the cash in. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) That tale comes right from Molly's lips in the James Cameron film, and that's because reprints of Fowler's work circulated in the decades to come. Molly's now infamous history, and I say that word in quotes because this wild version of her life is decidedly very fictionalized, but all of this married to her reputation as a heroic Titanic survivor, which that reputation was very much warranted. But these two married and then spread like fire, and eventually, as you probably know, led to a musical and a film called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. She never, though, she never went by the name Molly in real life. The first Titanic novels, written in 1912, if you can believe it, were actually Swedish and Finnish, melodramas that are trying not only to make sense of this insane tragedy, of course, but also weirdly pasting sentiments of patriotism and politics onto them. In one, a Swedish engineer decides to try his luck in America, board Titanic in first class, and on board meets the daughter of an American millionaire, a woman who is shown to be spoiled, frantic, vain, and there is this sense of her representing a typical American, of course. She's more in love with some Italian count who is also on board, but in the process of the sinking and some lifeboat heroics, she unshockingly realizes that the Swedish man, who is modest and brave and quieter, is a much better romantic choice. So if you thought that the Titanic romance melodrama was some new concept, some new way to look at the whole thing in film or literature, well, surprise! (laughs) 
And I obviously cannot speak to Swedish politics. So I don't know what else is is being conveyed through that plot line. But I did find it interesting when I stumbled upon that description. So there's a huge gap here. And this is the gap that I was surprised by. That you see this outpouring of poetry, some novels in 1912 and right after. And then there's this gap. And I think it has a lot to do with just everything that happens after Titanic, World War I, the Spanish flu, World War II, that the Titanic, that the meaning of Titanic and the imagery of it in the American mind, there is historically a gap between the immediate aftermath and the 1950s when A Night to Remember kind of brings it back into the American consciousness so profoundly. I expected to find more novels and more just pure works of fiction from the early part of the century, and I just didn't. And if I'm missing them, and it's something that you know about, please let me know immediately, and I will do, uh, I will remedy that by doing a second part of this episode. But there is, interestingly, a huge gap, and we go all the way to A Night to Remember in the 50s, which of course is not, it's not a work of fiction, that's nonfiction. But after that is really when sort of the story of the Titanic novel seems to begin. And the book I received the most messages about during my prep for this episode was hands down Clive Cussler's Raise the Titanic. Talk about genre (laughs) and talk about gimmick. I honestly had no idea that this book remained such a part of the sort of pop culture aura around Titanic until a couple of years ago when I started intense Titanic research heading into this pod. I hadn't even known about it. I was born in 1984, so I missed the 1970s Titanic moment. But I got a copy recently and within two pages... I was just laughing, you guys, because the updated paperback copy I have has this preface in which Cussler heavily, heavily implies that his novel is what inspired Robert Ballard and other oceanographers and naval experts to find the Titanic in 1985. I mean, I hope it goes without saying, but that's hogwash. I mean, we'll talk about it soon, but crazy schemes to raise the Titanic were in the work starting in 1912. Dozens of people wanted to raise her in those early decades. Tactical planning that included everything from filling the sunken hull with balloons or foam or ping pong balls to a plan that involved freezing her so she'd become an ice cube that floated to the surface as if the Atlantic Ocean were her cup. But anyway, back to Raise the Titanic and Clive Cussler's a serial spy hero, Dirk Pitt, who is also required to defeat the Soviets as part of this epic Titanic adventure. The ship is raised with no shortage of metaphors and imagery that will make you squirm if you are, I don't know, a fan of gender equality. <laughs> Stephen Biel has said it best in his book, Down with the Old Canoe, A Cultural History of the Titanic. He says that the team raises Titanic in a flurry of gendered imagery, imagery, excuse me. And he plucks this quote out that as she came up, the quote, ship was a mess, like a hideous old prostitute who dwelt in dreams of better days and long lost beauty. Okay. The book was made into a 1980 movie that I have not seen, scared to see it, 
should I do it for my film series? Let me know what you think. Truly, truly kind of frightened to watch it. I did read that Robert Ballard actually had a copy of this film on board the ship The Noor in 1985 as he and his team searched for the wreck just days from finding it at that point. Then there was Donald A. Stanwood's The Memory of Eva Riker, 1978, a story about a policeman involved with a case concerning Titanic survivors. And he'd also miraculously been given the opportunity to write about a mission to locate the wreck, an investigation which eventually reveals, good God, among so many other things, goodness, a plot involving kidnapping and diamond smuggling and murders on the Titanic. He solves this decades and decades lost mystery. Of course he does. And finds out the same killer was responsible for the deaths of Titanic survivors in Hawaii. So final destination sort of concept on Titanic. But guys, this is a real book. And the protagonist is on a quest to prove his manhood by solving the mysteries of the ship. And this comes up again and again, doesn't it? This unsinkable insistence in culture that Titanic is shrouded in some sort of mystery, some metaphorical haunting or literal haunting, some supernatural veil that requires us to keep going back to her to look for more answers. In the 1970s, a generation of readers and enthusiasts who'd grown up on A Night to Remember from the 50s who'd fantasized perhaps about becoming explorers of the deep and locating the wreck, these people came of age and wrote about it and contributed to the culture of the ship's memory. And the narrative seems to be commandeered by the male hero, doesn't it? And I even used like military language to describe that. Interesting. I even did it. This idea that finding the ship could and would be only some very masculine redemption narrative, some feat of heroics. And I will say what's going on in Titanic fiction now is a gorgeously stark opposite to that, which Chelsea and I talk quite a bit about coming up. In 1989, British science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke, I'm sure you've heard of him, sat down to put a spin on it as well, though his impetus seems to fall fairly in the camp of nostalgia. He later said of his book, which is called The Ghost of the Grand Banks, quote, I was born five years after the biggest maritime disaster the world had ever known, the sinking of the unsinkable RMS Titanic while on her maiden voyage. And my hometown, Minehead, in Somerset, was not more than a couple of hundred kilometers from Southampton, from where the Titanic set off. All my life, I have been intrigued by the disaster. The book was this thriller set in the future, all the way up to 2012, of course, a future that is for us now past. And in it, rival British American and Japanese teams attempt to raise the wreck in time for the Centennial Memorial in 2012. In a reference to the zanier ideas of the earlier 20th century, whether by Clark purposeful or not, one team in this book relies on 50 billion little glass balls to do, I guess beads, little balls it says, but I guess beads, to do the raising. And the other team employs a plan to make essentially the world's largest 
ice cube. Funny how that idea seems to make the rounds. Also in 1990, there's a book by Robert Serling called Something's Alive on the Titanic, which posits an alternate universe in which Ballard and his team actually aren't the first to the wreck at all. A team 10 years prior made it to the wreck and they all died, save for one survivor. When another group makes it back some years later, well, well, the title is its own spoiler, isn't it? What's interesting is that for as cheesy and pulpy, I mean, picking pulp from my teeth, pulpy, this seems. When I went digging for reviews on this particular book, I ran across a lot of people expressing that they felt oddly moved by some of it, particularly the passages in which a ghostly Officer Murdoch reappears in this ghastly underwater world of the wreck. The discovery of the wreck in 1985 is without question, at least in my opinion, why you see a huge surge of Titanic fiction in the 1990s. There's a time-traveling book by Jack Finney. There's a dramatization of the life of members of the ship's band by Norwegian novelist Eric Fosnes Hansen. Hope I'm pronouncing his name right. A book called Psalm at Journey's End. And if the 70s and 80s were about men defining themselves through the wreck, then the 90s were at least slightly more female, though still often with the patina of that classic male heroism narrative really hovering very closely. In Daniel Steele's 1991 novel, No Greater Love, heroine Edwina Winfield is traveling with her fiancé, Charles Fitzgerald, and as historian Stephen Beale has pointed out, like, quote, good Victorians, they have resisted their sexual urges, and there's so much discussion about Edwina waiting until August when they would get married to consummate this relationship. Lots of talk about that. And when the ship sinks and Charles disappears with the ship, her waiting becomes symbolically indefinite. Edwina's parents die as stand-ins for the Strausses, choosing to stay together until the very end. Remember Ida and Isidore Strauss, who owned Macy's? They're the couple in the 97 movie that stay together. They're on the bed at the end. So her parents are very much standards in this book. And Edwina is left to care for her five brothers and sisters. So she becomes this emblem of purity and self-sacrifice of these Edwardian heroics we so often, of course, associate with the first class passengers. But she also takes over her father's newspaper business, which is this weird little feminist part of the tale. But don't worry. She eventually meets a Hollywood movie mogul who rescues her from a fate of virgin spinsterhood. The ship's maiden voyage, Edwida's maidenhood. There's a lot of analogy ripe there, of course, but I also think it's just a romance novel. I've read several historians overanalyzing this one. We're notorious for that. Putting it into a context of the state of feminism in the 1980s and 90s. But honestly, I think Titanic fiction gets pushed through a much more intense ringer because of its subject matter. But sometimes it's just the analyzing like that is just knocking at an empty door, you know? Insert the cultural behemoth of the 97 movie. And it's also not shocking that the thematic direction of Titanic fiction turns in the late 90s even more into romance. Titanic, The Long Night is a 98 romance novel by Diane Howe, 
And it's about a woman on her way to marry a man she doesn't want to marry. Does that sound familiar? There's a lot of them. There's one literally called Titanic Affair by an author named Amanda Grange from 2004. And that's not to discredit any of these titles. And there's a lot of them. Uh, It's not to discredit them for having to do anything to do with romance at all. I mean, what kind of hypocrite would I be if I did that? I think the driving force, I think we all can agree the driving force behind Cameron's Titanic film is the love story that brings out the humanity in us and before the sinking, the dare I say, fun and sweetness of the narrative of falling in love. This is a huge part of why we go back to that movie. That part has nothing to do with the sinking. And there are female writers in the 90s doing incredibly interesting things with class for the first time, Uh, like Cynthia Bass, who wrote Maiden Voyage, which tells the story of a son of a suffragist who has traveled to see his father in the UK and is sort of caught between worlds. And there's Beryl Bainbridge's Every Man for Himself, which critiques Edwardian notions and customs of class and gender. And it's through a first-class male character, which is interesting, and it openly criticizes sexual double standards. This book was actually nominated for the Booker Prize, and once I came across this description, I immediately ordered it and wished that I had read it for this episode. I will remedy that and report back. Combing through lists, reviews, it got overwhelming, and To be honest, I was pretty frustrated by the lack of kind of meat to sink my teeth in, in a literary sense. But then I realized that I just hadn't made it far enough, really, that I, that we are actually living right in the middle of that impetus taking root in a literary sense, in the literary world. And when I found Alan Wolfe's The Watch That Ends the Night, published in 2011, which I read from in the intro to this episode... I finally got a sense of what is possible when Titanic historical fiction flows from an inspired and informed and artistic pen. Wolf gives us the words of Ismay and of Captain Smith, of a Norwegian immigrant, of children crossing the ocean without their parents, of crew members like Harold Lowe, but also of the very rats that scuttle on board. Wolf skillfully grabs artistic license and gives voice to the iceberg, even. Each passage is straight from someone, like a stream of consciousness. And although he's putting thoughts into heads, it's all done so believably that I found myself up late at night googling bits of details about certain passengers that I had never known. His research is immaculate. I have an episode about the passenger Helen Churchill Candy in the works, and there she was in his narrative having conversations with Margaret Brown about the facets of womanhood, things concerning their separations from their husbands, from working towards the right to vote, these conversations between two very modern and complex female activists that happened to be on Titanic. And they definitely would have been furrowing their brows over these topics on board, possibly talking to one another. And Wolf has that going on. It's incredible. Wolf himself writes that, quote, while the watch that ends the night is fiction, it is born of painstaking and sometimes simply painful research. The truth is how you tell it. I've allowed fancy to play within the confines of fact. So lastly, I want to touch just briefly on children's fiction, which, believe it or not, is one of the most prolific 
corners of the Titanic fiction world. There seems to have been, at least over the past few decades, a genuine effort to make the story of the tragedy relatable to younger children. I have younger children. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. And during the early days of the pandemic last year, when the idea of this podcast was first really born, I took to ordering long lists, very long ones, of Titanic books online, just searching and clicking order over and over again. And the books stacked up at our house in these miniature mountains. But it was this kid's book, this book called Tonight on the Titanic, from a 90s series called The Magic Treehouse, that sparked true Titanic mania in my whole household. In it, a young brother and sister who jumped from era to era and all over the world, thanks to, you guessed it, a treehouse that time travels, end up on the decks of the Titanic as she sinks, helping another young child into a lifeboat. Arguably, the first children's Titanic book was born directly from the sinking itself. It's actually a really interesting but a heartbreaking story. Six-year-old Robert Douglas Spedden, who was famously captured at age six playing on deck in photos by Father Frank Brown, who took pictures on Titanic. He traveled just between Southampton and the coast of Ireland. And those photos are the ones you've seen of Titanic because they're some of the only ones that exist. So that's Douglas um, in in those photos as a little boy. He was the only child of Frederick and Daisy Spedden, who were a wealthy couple from Tuxedo Park, New York. The family had spent late 1911 and early 1912 in Algiers, Monte Carlo, Paris. They'd also brought along a private nurse for Douglas, a woman named Elizabeth Burns, but Douglas called her Muddy Boons because he couldn't pronounce her name. Following the collision with the iceberg, the family and Burns made it off the ship in a lifeboat. Douglas slept through the night in the boat under those stars, and when he woke, he saw the icebergs all around him, and apparently he exclaimed, Oh, Muddy, look at the beautiful North Pole with no Santa Claus on it. In 1913, his mother, Daisy, wrote and illustrated a storybook that she gave to her son for Christmas, one that was told through the eyes of a toy bear, a polar bear, that goes to Europe and, of course, ends up on Titanic. The original booklet was found by a distant relative of the family in a barn many years later. This is into the 90s, 1990s. After sending a copy of the story to the Titanic Historical Society, it came to the attention of Madison Press Books, who eventually published the story with Little Brown and Company. There's a really sad reason that... This manuscript might have ended up in a dusty box, though, perhaps too painful to look at for the family, because on August 6th, 1915, nine-year-old Douglas was hit by a car near his family's summer home in Maine and died of a concussion. It's horrific. Recently, my daughter was homesick from school for a day, and I asked her to help me research for my podcast. And really, I just needed to read through some of these kids' books and read to her. But she took it really seriously, and she read through a few of them with me and asked questions. She was super engaged. And by far, her favorite was this book called Titanicat from 2008, a picture book about a teenage boy 
who crews on Titanic for its sea trials and plans to stay on for the whole voyage to New York. He takes care of a cat, a stray cat that's ended up on board and her kittens and follows them around the ship to learn its parts. The cats sort of show him around the ship and children, as they're reading the book, learn about the different parts of the ship. Just as the ship is about to leave Southampton, he sees the cat taking the kittens off one by one. He delivers the last one to her, doesn't want her to lose one of her kittens. So he races off the gangplank just as a steward warns him that if he does that, he's going to miss it. He's going to miss Titanic leaving. And he does. So the cat saves his life. My daughter went crazy over this. And once again, I was struck just as I am so often, despite how long I've spent with Titanic's story, I was struck at the power it has in almost every form. And there are so many children's books, just to note, a lot of them aimed at middle grade readers, ages, I'd say eight to 12. And a big first one was Barbara Williams's Titanic Crossing in 1997. The paperback has this rather agonizing illustration of a child in freezing water on it. 53 children died on the Titanic, almost half who boarded. So it's a sobering topic to turn into young adult material. But I will say that in most of these books, the children who are the protagonists of that particular work tend to make it out alive. In 2021, it seems to me that Titanic remains a mythic setting that authors will continue to play with and rework. And this is sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. I want to shout out Bob, a listener who emailed me about a fairly recent horror adjacent novel called Carpathia, in which for the best that I can tell, I haven't read it yet. The survivors from Titanic who make it on board the rescue ship Carpathia have to then battle to stay alive until they make it to New York because they're being hunted by vampires. <laughs> Am I disappointed that there hasn't been some epic literary classic set on Titanic to unpack? Sure, yes, a little bit. I kind of was hoping that's what would happen here. But as I read about the history of historical fiction, something occurred to me. It's entirely possible that given that classics of historical fiction seem to be delayed by a century at least, sometimes two, that authors tend to want to separate themselves from the eras they write about with that gap, that perhaps the great Titanic novel hasn't been yet written and perhaps the person who will write it is the same person you're about to hear from, Chelsea Pinkard, who is a blogger, but so much more than that. She is just, she's an avid Titanic reader and has turned her love of Titanic fiction and really Titanic research in general. She's incredibly up on all of the latest research in nonfiction Titanic world as well. But she's turned that into an amazing blog, a really great Instagram account, and really a persona. And she's incredible. And I I really mean that. I, after talking to her, I, I really wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now, I see an ad pop up online, or I walk into a bookstore, and her book is there. And it's the great Titanic novel we've all been waiting for. Would not be shocked in the least. So I'm going to get to the interview in just a second, but a couple of notes. 
I do want to issue a correction from my previous episode. So I, in the episode about the six, the Chinese survivors, I talked about the lifeboat that a few of them were on. And I said that there was a woman named Antony, who was Lebanese, who was on that lifeboat, Antony Yazbek. That was not her name. She was Selene Yazbek. Antony was her husband, and she was listed as Mrs. Antony. Uh, so that I got that confused when I was doing my research. I apologize. So her name was Selene Yazbek. She was the survivor. I messed that up. So I just wanted to correct that. I also want to give a shout out, a huge shout out, and thanks to my very first patron on Patreon, and that is listener Anna Jackson, who I just want to say a big thank you to for investing in the podcast, for being a part of the podcast, and also I I got a chance to email with her and just gave me some great ideas for the show as well. This is an incredible experience. It means so much to me if you are someone that that can log on to Patreon and donate just a small amount per month that is so appreciated and of course goes directly into the podcast for covering the costs of the show, for uh, covering my ongoing research, and hopefully in the future some travel. I have some amazing ideas that involve traveling to some Titanic locations and it would be really awesome to do some uh, episodes that involve recording on-site places. All right, so if you can, that is Patreon slash pod. And also just, and again, that's not expected of anybody. I'm just mentioning it. Um, If you want to contact me and just chat about anything, please, of course, as always, feel free to. I am unsinkablepod at gmail.com. On Instagram, unsinkablepod. On Twitter, unsinkablepod. If you are listening to the pod on Apple, please consider rating and reviewing if you're enjoying those reviews and ratings really help uh, the numbers for the podcast continue to grow and helps visibility of the podcast and just how many people are seeing and and might want to click and listen. So that is amazing if you're able to do that too. All right, I am not going to delay any longer. I want to get you to this interview. It's incredible. Please listen to every second. Chelsea, thank you again so much for for sitting down with me and talking about all this. It's lovely. I have tears in my eyes, happy tears thinking about it. It was such an incredible experience. All right. Cheers, you guys. Enjoy. Here's Chelsea. All right. Hi there, Chelsea Picard. Nice to meet you. It's lovely to meet you too. Thank you so much. Uh, This is kind of fun. The time difference we should let the listeners know is what is it? 16 hours? 16 hours. (laughs) It's fun. It's nine o'clock at night for me. What time is it for you? It is just gone 1 p.m. in the afternoon. The next day. So this is is fun for me. I love that the podcast is allowing me to sort of travel all over the world in one capacity, you know, in this capacity. So I want to just let you kind of first off, give the listeners a little sense of how you came around to becoming the Titanic girl. I mean, you have a blog, you have an amazing Instagram account, you have this thorough knowledge of books about the Titanic. And this is kind of your brand in a way. I think you're doing an amazing job and it's very far reaching already. So if you wouldn't mind telling listeners just kind of how you came to this and a little bit of your backstory with Titanic. When did you kind of fall in love with it and give us a sense of your journey. Yeah, absolutely. I um 
I first saw the James Cameron film when I was about maybe six years old, I think. And I have this vivid memory of just falling in love with it and being really captivated by it, even though I didn't really kind of understand what it was about at that stage. When I was about eight, the Artifact exhibition came here to Australia and my parents took me to see that. I think I was probably the most excited person there. I was just this tiny little kid grinning, like biggest smile on my face. And I think that was the moment where I realised that Titanic was going to mean more to me than than I'd ever kind of anticipated it would. And I have a, a really nice photo of myself with my parents at eight years old on the replica of the forward grand staircase. And it's such a nice kind of memory to look at now, look back and think that that little, that little girl had no idea that it would come to mean so much to her as she got older. And then throughout kind of like my teenage years the the interest grew from just like a passion into a full blown obsession it was it was all i thought about when i was in grade 12 i did a a research project on titanic historical fiction um so i actually wrote a like a 15,000 word report on on titanic historical fiction for school wow um, 15,000 words yeah that's that, that's substantial that's a yeah. large project yeah it was, it was <laughs> so much fun i was I've always been really into writing. I think writing and and history for me go hand in hand. And I've always loved kind of historical stories. I knew I wanted to do something Titanic related, but I wasn't really sure how to kind of break into the community. So I thought I might start a blog. I might just start, you know, sharing some, some stories that fascinate me, talking about the books I'm reading. And so the Titanic Girl blog was born, which was about a year ago, almost a year ago to the date today. It was the end of October because I remember doing a Halloween thing last year. I think with with the blog, I was most interested in kind of looking at the Titanic historical fiction that I read. And because I, I didn't see a lot of people kind of talking about the fiction side of Titanic and, and how no, Titanic fiction. Yeah, which is yeah. so interesting, because there is so much of it. And there has been so much of it, especially over the last kind of two decades or so, like the 21st century has seen a massive rise in, in Titanic historical fiction. And I'd always found it interesting looking at how writers kind of found a balance between telling an engaging story, like telling a story that readers are going to want to read, and also getting the Titanic story, which is so steeped in kind of mystery and myth, getting it right and portraying it accurately. And it's a really interesting balance to find when you're reading it, reading Titanic historical fiction, because I think you there's a there comes a point in Titanic historical fiction where it's never going to be completely accurate if you want to tell an engaging story. And so that's really fun to break apart in the blog. Yeah. And this was going to be, I'll go ahead and just go to it. This is one of my big questions. I, I mean, I should admit to listeners and I talked to you about it when we emailed, this is a completely new niche of this world for me. And I did read one of the big ones we'll talk about here in a minute to sort of immerse myself, you know, try to like get in the mindset a little bit. But that was, that's a big question of mine, which is now that you've read so many of these that are historical fiction, and that's kind of, you know, obviously mostly what we'll talk about today. What is that line, do you think, between accuracy and telling the story? I guess, you know, a good way to do it was, let's go ahead and delve into the one I read. So I read The Girl Who Came Home. The author is, is it, it's Hazel Gaynor. Part of this book is a journal from the main character, and there's a page where she is explaining that as an Irish person in third class, she feels like there are so many of her. And it even says, oh, I think that, you know, the Irish people were taking up half of steerage. 
And that's not accurate. You know, it's at all. And I actually pulled up a list of, you know, the number of ethnicity, like a a stats page that broke it down ethnicity wise. I think there were 120 Irish people in third class. And does something like that matter? That book's about an Irish girl. So maybe that it just makes the story deeper, richer. Where do you think the line is, you know, in that book specifically, and then you can kind of branch off to, to more of your thoughts about it? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I think the ultimate power of Titanic historical fiction and of historical fiction in general is that you really are aiming to engage readers through someone else's eyes. You are immersing them in the story in a way that you don't get with kind of nonfiction. So when you're reading nonfiction, you're reading this list of facts, this kind of chronological order. But when you're seeing the story unfold through a character's eyes, through a character that you have come to empathize with and love over the course of the story, it brings a whole new element of emotion to it. And like you say, although there weren't really that many Irish people on Titanic, it seems like they've kind of become this idea of what steerage was, like it was just this big group of Irish immigrants. But what you see through the the main character of the girl who came home, whose name is Maggie, you get a kind of... Uh, almost like a tunnel vision lens into what life was really like in steerage. And I think by focalising the story through Maggie's eyes, you actually get a better understanding of what everyday life was like down in steerage as opposed to just reading about, you know, the facilities they had access to and the decks that they were allowed to go to and how their cabins were laid out. And I think it's, you know, what I really love about The Girl Who Came Home is that it's a fictionalised version of the story of the Adigal 14, who are a group of 14 Irish immigrants from County Mayo in in Ireland who all travelled on Titanic together and of the 14, 11 of them perished. So only three of the 14 from this very small area survived the sinking. Now what Hazel Gaynor has done in a really clever way is she's used the story of the Adigal 14 but she's completely fictionalised all of the characters. So none of the characters in the Adigal 14 in the novel are the exact names of the people who were in the Adigal 14 on Titanic. And that's really effective, I think, in terms of balancing telling a good story with getting historical accuracy and being respectful of the history that you're telling. Because I think if she'd used the actual historical figures of the Adigal 14, you would be taking advantage of their memory and their legacy and their character. Mm -hmm. You're putting words into the mouth of someone that you didn't know. And so by using fictional characters in a true story, the true story of the Adigal 14, you are distancing yourself from it in a way, but you are also kind of on the flip side, getting a better insight into just what life was like for them. Yeah, it's really hard, I think, when you... I mean, perfect example, right? In the Cameron film, I mean, how much flack he took for the Murdoch scene Mm -hmm. for using an actual historical figure and inserting him into what, you know, is essentially a fictional part of the story because we have no idea who had the guns or who actually shot themselves. That's, we're never going to know the truth on that, obviously. So I think that's a good example of, you know, getting into sort of a bad spot maybe when you attempt to do it that other way. Also, I think you're right about the the sense of Irishness Mm -hmm. becoming something that's very important to how we understand the story. I've read a little bit about how that happened. I think the Cameron film had a lot to do with that, with its focus on the music is very Irish. There's this very sense of the ship being this kind of Irish creature in itself. There's the line where Tommy says, you know, it's built in Ireland and everything. So I think the film had a lot to do with that. And I think that 
this fiction, I think a lot of the fiction has sort of put the Irish at the forefront. So I think when the average person thinks about Titanic and third class, their mind goes to an Irish steerage party. Uh, another thing I, I noticed in The Girl Who Came Home was there's a character, right, that is supposed to be Dorothy Gibson. Vivian. Warner-Brown. Vivian Warner-Brown. Vivian Warner-Brown. Yeah. yeah. Um, she, again, is a very interesting character and she is has the same kind of effect as what the fictionalizing of the article 14 does in that she is very obviously a reference to Dorothy Gibson, like a kind of famous socialite, like actress performer. Like she's very, very obviously an allusion to Dorothy Gibson, but because the author has given her a, a fictional character, she's kind of created that distance so that the version of Dorothy Gibson, quote unquote, that is in the book is not going to directly influence the memory of Dorothy Gibson and Dorothy Gibson's legacy herself. As soon as you start putting words into the mouths of historical figures in a fiction text, they are no longer that historical figure. They are a caricature. They are a a dramatization of that historical figure. And so people like James Cameron get a lot of feedback, like negative feedback on, on dramatizing these genuine figures. But you've got to remember that the moment you put any words or any actions into these people's mouths that can't be, you can't give them a document that says this is exactly what they said, you are no longer writing that historical figure. You are writing a, a fictional version of them. Well, and this is why I have been, I mean, I have, I have training in academic history, mm-hmm. but in, in recent years, I've been very intrigued by historical fiction mm-hmm. and I've kind of been in both worlds or at least read both worlds. And I actually think you're on to something. I think that if you are, whether you're the producer of a movie or you're going to write a book, I actually think that you're much better off making all of your characters fictional, or at least most of the ones that you're going to put words in their mouths, right? Because you have the freedom to tell a very realistic story down to what they ate, down to who they may be in love with or whatever it may be. And if the minute that you, I think you're right, the minute that you take on the life of someone that people know, or was a real person, you, it's a can of worms that you can't undo. And it also often is very boring because if you're a writer or if you're a filmmaker, then you have to just go through this laundry list of, okay, I have to make sure I include this. Oh, people are going to be mad if I don't include this about their life, which is why I am never a fan of like biopic movies, the ones that are just straight biography of a person film. And it's a, it's a film. It's supposed to be fictional in some ways, but it's bogged down by the director, obviously being concerned of what the perceptions Mm -hmm. of this person are. And I never like those. And so that's interesting. I never, that's a great point. I never thought about it that way. So in that same realm, so if you take a book, like the girl who came home, what are some other themes, ideas, trends that you're seeing in historical fiction in that realm? Like what, say ones that have come out in the last, you know, five to 10 years, what else are you noticing as someone that's reading a lot of these? Yeah, I think another big thing that I, I notice in, in reading a lot of Titanic historical fiction and trying to stay up to date on on new books, because I feel like even this year alone, there have been a lot of Titanic historical mm-hmm. fiction books that have come out and I've been struggling to keep up. Another kind of key theme I think that that I've been seeing at least or that I've been noticing is split timeline Titanic novels. So like The Girl Who Came Home, you've got part of it set in 1912 and you've got part of it set in the future with 
an older character looking back or a, or a, a descendant finding memories, things like that. And I think that's also really effective is because it shows that kind of generational impact of Titanic. We're 109, almost 110 years later, and yet the world is so much more captivated by Titanic now than it has ever been before. And so I think Titanic fiction novels that show that kind of present day breaking down something that happened a century ago and and revealing the kind of generational impact of Titanic, um, that's something that I've definitely noticed as well. And I think that's really effective and it really shows how Titanic continues to have an impact on society in the present day in a way that we might not really expect. It's, it's you know, really amazing to see just how passionate people like you and I and, and people in the online Titanic community are to something that, for the most part, a lot of us have no kind of logical connection to. Like, a lot of us aren't descendants of survivors. A lot of us are like, I'm on the opposite side of the world to where all of this took place. And yet, Titanic is one of those major things in my life that just makes sense for some reason. I had, um, I mentioned it in my last episode when I did an episode on supernatural stuff mm-hmm. and Titanic, but I have a good friend who has a student who said that a, a fortune teller told them that they were on the Titanic. And yeah. I mean, I imagine a lot of fortune tellers pull that one out. There's probably a lot of people walking around that have been told that, but it sounded like it really affected this person. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of speaks to what you're saying. I think it is it's the ultimate metaphor. It's the ultimate analogy. We've all grown up with it as this, I think, especially after the 97 movie, we've just grown up with it as part of our cultural dialogue. And maybe that trend is is part of us. Yeah. Younger people wanting to feel like they can be connected to it because a lot of the, a lot of the children of survivors have even gone now. You've got children and grandchildren of survivors that are dying of older age because that's how long it's been. And so maybe that trend is kind of part of people wanting to hold on to that, yeah. that familial connection. Yeah. I think that that's, that's so interesting that you bring that up because I was just thinking about how, that, that kind of question of, of how it affects us and how we wonder what we would have done if we were there. And I think mm-hmm. that's also a, another great power of historical fiction is that it almost immerses us in a way that lets us consider how we would have reacted had we been there on the deck, had we been roused from our beds at midnight and told to, to get into the lifeboats. Titanic fiction and historical fiction serves to, it, it makes you wonder what you would have done in that situation because once you're seeing it through a character's eyes you're you're in their shoes you're no longer looking at it from a from a hindsight of being in the future you're no longer looking at it with a bird's eye view you are in the moment feeling the character's emotions as they're standing on deck freezing listening to the funnels vent steam it it becomes a lot more personal if you read the kind of author's note and acknowledgements in titanic fiction novels a lot of them actually mention the film they'll mention that maybe they were inspired by James Cameron's movie or maybe they used to watch A Night to Remember when they were little. And so I definitely think that there's a tie between the success of previous Titanic media and the sudden rise in more and more and more books coming out. Because I think that's the brilliant thing about the Titanic narrative in general. Um, And I've spent a long time thinking about this and it's something that I definitely want to try and kind of break down more. But the Titanic story, the kind of general outline of, you know, April 10th to April 18th works as the perfect narrative structure when you're thinking about creative writing as a kind of formula for a novel. You've got your inciting incident, which is boarding the ship in Southampton, Cherbourg or Queenstown. 
You've got you can do your so many things with just that. Yeah. yeah, like who's coming on at which spot, and you what's their motivation in, like, for being yeah, there? Yeah, characters, good characters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got the bulky middle, which is the four days of the voyage, which is the hardest part of any novelty. You've got to have plot points and drama and character interactions take up that four days. You've got to kind of almost resolve that four days worth of plot points because as soon as the iceberg collision happens, which is your peak drama moment all stakes, you know, everything goes out the window. Mm -hmm. And then you've got two hours and 40 minutes of ultimate tension, which you see about two thirds of the way through the majority of novels. Like that's the kind of peak drama. And then you've got your your slow kind of like darkest moment, you know, after the ship disappears and you're in the lifeboats waiting or you're in the water wondering whether you're going to survive. And then you've got your resolution of Carpathia arriving and, and going to New York. It works as the perfect kind of narrative formula. And so what authors have done over the last, especially over the last kind of 10, 15 years, is that they've seen that this is the perfect background. And so they can then input any character, any story, any possible plot that they want. And that's created a lot of brilliant Titanic historical fiction and a lot of obscure <laughs> Titanic historical like fiction. Like the, uh, the zombie one? Isn't there's there a, a zombie one? There's several. There's, <laughs> I know of at least there three. Are, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. Let me make sure this is on record. There are several zombie Titanic novels. There okay. are. There are also it's vampire just, ones, werewolf ones. It's just such a testament to how timeless the story is, how incessantly we all... I mean this story is never going anywhere. You know, it just, it's the, it, I think that just proves, it's almost like, it reminds me of Jane Austen. It reminds mm. me of like a couple of years ago, my husband bought me the zombies and Jane Austen book. And, oh, Pride and Prejudice I mean, and Zombies. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And I still haven't read it. He still asks me all the time. Are you ever going to read that sweet gift? It's just not my cup of tea, but I think that it's just a testament to how Titanic is right up there with the big moments, the yeah. big historical moments and figures that we that will never go away. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to my next question, which is on the cheesier end of things. I So the girl who came home is the only one I've read all the way through that I just wanted to pick one that you recommended and I wanted to have recently read it. But I have heard that there are, are there romance novels? There are indeed. Up. Tell me a little bit about how those are and what you think about. I'm just, I'm curious. I know nothing. I've only read a little on the internet. I just, you know, Googled a few things, but tell me, tell me about those a little bit. If you. Yeah, you know. I think, I think like I love romance fiction and I never used to. It wasn't until a few years ago that I really like admitted to myself that I love a good romance book. And I think the rise of Titanic romances, again, harks back to the James Cameron film. And what James Cameron did so effectively is he combined two of the world's most famous stories, Romeo and Juliet and Titanic. And he literally just put them together and created one of the most successful films of all time. But I think a lot of Titanic romance that has come into existence since then is living up to a standard that I don't know whether it's ever going to necessarily meet because like the success of James Cameron's movie is astronomical. It was cheesy. And when you read his screenplay, there are a lot of lines that are very questionable. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, again, Titanic being the perfect backdrop for any story allows you to uh, explore romance and love, which is again, a very universal concept oh, and, and it, it is, exists in any genre and any historical event or any fiction topic that you write about. With Titanic, it's really hit or miss. There are 
I'm trying to recall, there is a, a particular Titanic romance novel that always sticks out in my mind as being embarrassing that I read earlier this year. It's called On the Edge of Daylight by Giselle Beaumont. And okay. it is a romance. Oh, okay. I have to preface by saying that the premise of the novel was really good. It was about a fictional seventh officer on the bridge who was female. And I went, that sounds amazing. Like you can look at sexism in oh, the yeah, Edwardian era. Like- you can look at women in kind of the mercantile marine and how that would go about. And I was like, great. And then the author made it a romance with First Officer Murdoch. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> which choice. Murdoch was married in 1912 but in the story that this author's told he's recently divorced and so he and the seventh officer character who's fictional get together. Now I would have been fine with it if it was maybe just like a little bit of kind of like almost like fanfic like a a bit of kind of workplace flirting kind of this went from casual bickering to like to 50 shades of gray the graphic yeah yes. and I was like, like a child doesn't need to be reading this book no. like your 12 year old doesn't need to be reading this book no okay. and you I was like finish. when I read that it was so interesting because that's one of those key moments of a historical figure being morphed for an author's to suit an author's needs this author has has taken first officer Murdoch and turned him into a male love interest in a very cheesy and very inappropriate way that's a line that's an interesting line to cross and again when you're using real life figures Mm -hmm. and you're not only using fictional figures I think it was meant to be I think it was meant to be based on Murdoch in the film I think they were kind of doing like the actor's version of Murdoch at this point it is almost impossible to unmarry Titanic in the cultural mind from that film. Absolutely. So even if you don't actually like the movie, which again is your anybody's prerogative, you can't deny though the cultural impact that it's had on how we tell the Titanic story, who is involved in telling the Titanic story, things like this. Like if you're sitting down and you're reading a book like this, as you say, this character might have even been based on the character of the movie and not yeah. the real person. It, well, it that intrigues me as a lifelong Titanic person that you can't separate it anymore. I mean, it's such an important, it was such an important cultural moment that it's bleeding into all of this. As a podcaster trying to do this, it's interesting because I never know, you know, if I have a guest on what their sort of stance on the film is, or I never know how much to mention about it if I do a specific episode. I don't, I don't want to offend people that aren't super into it, but also it's hard not to mention it with certain topics because it is, it's so inherent in the cultural history now of yeah. the whole thing. You're a hundred percent right. And, and I love that the way you phrase that it bleeds into Titanic story in general, something like, and this is kind of harking back to like kind of creative writing formula in that using like historical figures there has been a villainization of certain historical figures because of James Cameron's film we have been positioned to see them as antagonists people like Murdoch for spoiler alert shooting Tommy and people like like it's a 25 year old movie and yeah. people can <laughs> if you don't know Tommy dies anyway Tommy's dead guys Tommy's yeah. dead um, and I'm still not over it showing uh Bruce Ismay jumping into a lifeboat the one that sticks out in my mind especially is Second Officer Lightoller. In the James Cameron movie, he is portrayed as this very stern, you know, yes. very severe man who is villainized because he pulls out his gun and says, 
uh, get back, I say, or I'll shoot you all like dogs. And he was mm-hmm. so women and children only kind of thing. And so that has impacted on the memory of Second Officer Lightoller, even though it's a fictional portrayal of him. Bruce is May's yeah. cowardice, which is something that was talked about in the aftermath of the Titanic disaster, has been magnified by James Cameron's choice to show him jumping into the lifeboat of his own accord. Mm-hmm. It It's this bleeding through of fiction into reality that I think you're absolutely right. The Titanic film is inseparable from the, the story's existence in the present day. It's, you can't divide them anymore just because of that sheer amount of success. Yeah, and with Ismay, it's interesting, and The Girl Who Came Home, that was one of my big notes as I read it, which was the moments that the fictional characters would see, you know, if they would see Captain Smith or Bruce Ismay on the decks, it would be a little mention, just a short little paragraph, oh, there's Bruce Ismay talking to Captain Smith about the speed, you know, and and getting in these little bits of dialogue or, or moments where the author wants, wants you to know, they know the narrative, they know yeah. the basic history. But the problem with that is that they're inserting what is maybe the most common known narrative may not necessarily be correct. I mean, I did a whole episode on Ismay and there is, there are so many versions of him on that ship. There are so many ways to tell that story in the end. I, I personally don't necessarily think he was being very malicious with anything. You know, his, his portrayal has been amplified even more over the years as this villain. He's been amplified as a villain. And so I do think that was one of my, that was just one of my negative notes. I didn't have many, you know, some of, some of this just accepted dialogue Mm -hmm. gets inserted and then it just keeps going. It keeps snowballing into like, this is, you know, Ismay's the villain, Ismay's the villain Mm -hmm. and that narrative will never end. Yeah. Um, So I think there is a little bit of a danger in that. There is. The the name dropping especially is interesting. You're right. It's, it's almost like the author is unconsciously saying like, trust me, I've done my research. Like I I know what I'm talking about. The mentions of, you see it often with people like Thomas Andrews and Bruce Ismay. They get like, like uh, yeah, yeah. as a first class passenger, they'll say, oh, I saw Thomas Andrews going up the staircase with his notebook in hand or something along those lines. And it it happens quite often. You just get and like, or they'll meet Margaret Brown having tea somewhere or, (laughs) or something like that. There's always something like that. What I particularly like about uh, the girl who came home is that one of the points of view that we read about is actually a steward on Titanic by the name of Harry. Crew points of view in Titanic fiction, I think, are so important and they're so few and far between because a, a crewman like Harry, a steward, is more likely to see people like the officers and see significant people because he's got a reason to be darting all around the ship. He's got a reason to be in different locations. And so that makes these name dropping more realistic. Like I'm pretty sure in it's been a few months since I read last read The Girl Who Came Home, because I reread it I think beginning of this year. He, from what I recall, is friends with with Jack Phillips and Harold Bride. Yes. And he's like getting a he's sending a message kind of yeah. as a favor for the main character. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, so it's yeah. yeah. In that instance, it's certainly because he's a steward, he's more likely to have bumped into and know of mm-hmm. the Marconi boys as opposed to a passenger having to figure out where the Marconi office is, figure out how to do all that. Like having a crew point of view gives a character a reason to be darting around to areas on the ship that a passenger wouldn't necessarily be. 
So when you see things like characters in third class sneaking up into first class and first class being curious and going down into third class, that's really, when you think of the segregation of classes on Titanic, it's not very realistic. It's a, it's a drama point. But with a crew point of view, with a crew character, you get a little bit more flexibility. It's a good way to do it. I mean, I I think I've already said it maybe eight times on the podcast, but I mean, in the movie, there's no way that Jack Dawson ever is in first class. No, not, no. not if not if you're going to be a hundred percent, you know, accurate from a historical. And and I, I mean, I love the movie. I love James Cameron. If he ever listened to this, I would cry if he got mad. But me saying that. But um, so another thing I thought about is that there is a whole, there's a huge group of passengers on Titanic that no one ever writes about. And I was thinking about this when I was reading The Girl Who Came Home because we see some of the same characters that we tend to see. But I thought about someone like Helen Churchill Candy, and I don't know if you know much about I her. I love her. She, I mean, she's this feminist, really a feminist in my opinion. It seems like she's this wealthy woman on board that has literally written a book called How a Woman Can Survive Without on Her Own or something like that. I don't know. I'll have to put that in the show notes. Can't yep. think of the exact title. But which was brazen at that point in time in society and she's traveling alone and she has apparently she's sophisticated she's beautiful she's got male suitors following her around the <laughs> ship because she's such an amazing woman and it just seems like there's a, a deep well of people that you could mention and it seems like the same people get mentioned over Absolutely. and over again. in the histories too I mean I I buy like 10 Titanic books a week. I'm not even exaggerating. I I don't even know how much money I spent <laughs> at this point. But all of the the pure history books that I get are fantastic. And they're the works of people that have dedicated their lives in many cases to the research. So I'm certainly not, I don't want to be negative about that. But it seems to be the same segments rehashed Absolutely. over and over again. They're looking at the same people. They're looking at the same timelines. I personally believe that the timeline should be smashed open. Like once the ship hits the iceberg, there are two thirds of the stories that we don't even know because yeah. these people died. And that's always enamored me, you know, to think that there's only one third of what happened that we can even know. It's so interesting to think about. And so I do like the idea of historical fiction, especially after it hits the iceberg. I think there's so much that could have happened that we don't, we haven't even explored the possibility of. So what I mean, I'm curious as to whether you ever, do you want to write one? Like, is this something that you want to do? And, and certainly don't give away any plot <laughs> ideas because I, I, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm a writer as well. I get that. Don't, you know, give away any ideas that you yeah. have, but is that something that you would like to do? And if so, in a vague sense, what are some things that you'd like to see in the genre moving forward? Absolutely. I, I've i wanted to write a Titanic fiction novel since I was about 14. And I've got, there was one that I, like an actual draft of a novel that I was working on in like around that age, which is never going to see the light of day because it's really, really average. I mean, that, yeah, no, I mean, I wrote fan fiction when I was 13 and 14 and I mean, you'd laugh your way through all of that. I yeah. get it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely do want to write one, but I, and I have a few ideas of, of ways that I think I want to approach it, but I, I myself am very intimidated by it. And I think that's because I've read so much and I, I think so much about the kind of technicalities of Titanic fiction that I've almost scared myself away from ever pursuing it. I think 
in terms of Titanic writing in general, I do have a couple of ideas for research and books that I would like to write and like research and write in, in you know, the coming years. One of my favourite kind of groups on the ship is the female crew. Uh, so the 23 female crew members out of almost 900 crew, there were only 23 women. And that is a whole kind of group that, like you say, there are the same avenues of stories. We go down the same well-worn stories. So we hear a lot about Violet Jessup, the first-class stewardess, mm-hmm. and she very much overshadows the 22 other female crew members yeah, who were on Titanic. Yeah. And so I think that I would, I personally, in whether in fiction or whether in non-fiction, whether in just kind of general Titanic research, would love to see a greater focus on on the women themselves like on the the working women. And like you say, like Helen Churchill Candy, who was, she had a whole extraordinary life before and after Titanic, which seldom do we hear about. It's really interesting. And I was talking with a friend of mine last week about this, about how it's almost like Titanic passengers and crew spawned into history on April 10th and disappeared on April 18th. And we rarely hear about a lot about their lives before and after um, and I did actually want my friend, um, he has a, a YouTube channel. Well, he, he has an illustration company called Ocean Liner Designs and Illustration. And he has okay. a YouTube channel that he does ship related videos. And we actually filmed a video last weekend, which I think is going up tonight when we're recording this. But we did a video last weekend on Edith and Elsie Bowerman, who were Titanic's two suffragettes. And that's a new series that we're doing on his channel about Titanic women and about untold okay. women's stories. Because that's something that I'm really interested in. I think looking at Titanic as a field of, of women's studies, Titanic women have been given considerably less of a platform than their male counterparts. And I think that it would be nice to see, like there's women in the story who have been not necessarily omitted, but silenced. And so whether in future writing, whether in fiction, whether in nonfiction, in whatever form, I would love to see more of a focus on the kind of before and after of the very real women of the Titanic story, because I feel like they've been forgotten. Absolutely. And I, you know, it's funny, people ask me, oh, how are you going to do, you know, are you going to run out of episode ideas eventually? I just sort of laugh, you know, because the thing is, I could fill an entire year of this podcast just with women's stories. Oh, absolutely. I could, I could decide just to do, and, and I'm, you know what, I probably will at some point, because why not? There are no rules. But I could do an entire series on just, you know, unsung women of the Titanic, part one, part two, part three, you know, there are so many women on board that deserve for their stories to be broadcast. And that is, it's a problem with Titanic historiography is it's very male centered. Mm -hmm. It's very white male centered. A big aim of this podcast is to recenter that. I an interview I did about the film The Six that mm-hmm. we were talking about before we started recording, I uh, was talking with Stephen Schwankert about this and it really is it really is important to not always fall back on the first draft of history in a way. Yeah. It's like you you'd never you'd never publish a first draft of an essay you wrote or an article you tried to write as historians and researchers, it's our job to be constantly making new drafts of what the Titanic story is. So it is very frustrating when you see those same old drafts to kind of keep with that metaphor circulating. And I think a really modern new draft of it is, hey, a lot of these people on board were women and a lot of them were doing really exciting things Mm -hmm. and a lot of them survived and then went on to 
you know, suffer through the trauma of surviving, but then also do incredible things. I mean, Margaret Brown, who never even went by the name Molly. Oh, don't get never. me started. <laughs> I can't even, I, I don't. <laughs> and I mean, there are some historians that call her Molly and I'm thinking, where is, where's your degree from that? Please show it to me because I cannot understand how you would make this error, but she has an entire history after Titanic that is worthy of a two volume book. You know what I mean? So absolutely hundred percent. I think that's a great idea. I think it would be really amazing to, for someone like you who is steeped in the history has spent their time meticulously observing and reading all the different types of fiction I think it would be pretty amazing for then for you to go off, kind of take a deep breath and do one of your own, all having all absorbed all of that in your bones. So yeah. I definitely, I definitely hope that you do. You should definitely do that. I, um, I will, I will one day, <laughs> one day, uh, eventually um, I'll, I'll get my, you're, you're very young. You have plenty <laughs> of time. So tell me for listeners, if you had to name say three of the historical fictions that are pretty literary, really well done. If someone, if someone is listening and thinking to themselves, okay, this is maybe part of the story I want to dip my toes in. What would be three that you would say, definitely start with these, they're high quality, and you might get a sense of what all can be done in the genre. Yeah, that's a really big question. That is a, and it's a great question. I think there is such a a, a wide variety. Like we were saying before, there are some very literary Titanic fiction novels, and there are some obscure, uh, interesting creative interpretations of the ship. If I had to recommend kind of just off the bat three that I, I would recommend people look into, actually, because I, I, I wrote down a list of a couple of them that I thought I might mention in, yeah, in, in this recording. Yeah, and just share whatever, however you want. Yeah. yeah, and I'm just looking at it now, and all three of them were published this year. Um, which is great so the first one is one of my favorite novels of this year which is called Orphans of the Storm by Celia Imrie and it's the story of the two little uh, Navratil boys the two French orphans on Titanic told primarily through the perspective of their mother who wasn't on Titanic who was dealing with separation from her husband and as we know her husband kidnapped their two sons and went on Titanic without telling her and it's a very emotional story telling Titanic through the perspective of a woman who wasn't even on Titanic and yet was so drastically affected by it that I think it's a it's a brilliant kind of expose on the impact Titanic had on people who weren't necessarily there and it's a a brilliant novel and the the author and her research partner did some brilliant research on the actual kind of marriage relations of of the Navratil boy's mother and father and and where they stood and actually it kind of revealed that their father was a lot more of a controlling and and abusive husband than perhaps history has so far led on he was actually they were in divorce proceedings at the time of the voyage so and his legacy has kind of been portrayed as very there's a lot of that kind of like don't speak ill of the dead kind of thing but in reality he he kidnapped their two sons and taken them on titanic away from her there's a lot of that male heroism narrative through yeah. that story, I think. This idea that he heroically, you know, dropped the boys into the lifeboat and mm-hmm. then stepped back. Yeah, I think he his story kind of falls in that sometimes too. Yeah, absolutely. and w- what's interesting about his story too, and it's something that hasn't been mentioned as much, is they recovered his body. And when they recovered his body, he had a gun in his coat pocket, which is an interesting point that I think, which they actually kind of look at in that. the novel and... 
yeah, so again, it's kind of like a, a reverse villainization almost. He's been portrayed quite positively, or if not positively, then at least kind of ambiguously over the years. And now we yeah. can kind of say with a bit more confidence that actually maybe he was a little bit narcissistic. Maybe he was a little bit not violent. Quite, yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe he wasn't actually yeah. as good of a guy as, as we thought. Um, so that's a wow. brilliant a brilliant novel, and I, I would highly recommend listening to that. Celia Imrie, who wrote it, is actually a, a distant relative of Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon, I believe. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So she's, I mean, she said some interesting things about his kind of legacy, you know, the whole rumour of him paying out the people in his lifeboat, and she's touched on that, but I've, tr- like, tried not to think of that. I tried to separate the author from the art and, and really kind of look at the book itself, but that was a really brilliant novel. The other two that I have on my list also came out this year. One is called The Stars in April by an author called Peggy Wer- Peggy Wergau, I think it is, or Virgau, the sorry, W-I-R-G-A-U. And it is the story of Ruth Becker, told through Ruth Becker's point of view. It's a fictionalised version of Ruth Becker's story. And that was just really beautifully done. It's kind of a not quite young adult, like I think it's kind of bordering on middle grade young adult fiction, but it was just a really nice, quite respectful version of Ruth Becker's story. I thought that that was absolutely fascinating. The other thing I loved about that is that there is a, a, a distinct gap in Titanic fiction for second class character points of view, similar to the lack oh, of crew. You see a yes. lot of first class and a lot of third class and not a lot of second class. So something like Orphans of the Storm or The Stars in April, both of them have second class characters when you're on the ship, which I think is absolutely brilliant. And that's another gap that really needs to be filled in fiction. And then the last one I have on my list, which I wanted to shout out, and then I did just think of another one there while I was talking about oh, yeah. that. But um, the last one I have on my list is called The Second Mrs. Astor by Shana Abe, um, which is the story of John Jacob Astor and Madeline Astor's romance told through Madeline's point of view. Because I very firmly believe that their romance was a true romance. It was a courtship. Despite the age That's gap, I, despite everything, I truly believe that they loved me. each other. Despite mm. everything. And so getting to read their love story through Madeline's eyes as she falls for this man who is like the same age as her father mm. and his son is older than her and dealing with all of those kind of social implications was actually a really nice story. And I think Madeline has received a kind of bad reputation for being I suppose there's this kind of idea that she's a young gold digger she's 18 years old marrying a a really rich man but getting to read this story you see that really she was quite a a young and innocent girl but she was living up to the social expectations of an era that expected her to marry well and marry rich it's a really brilliant kind of tale of them kind of coming together and then her after only a brief marriage losing her husband all of a sudden and being pregnant at the time and having to deal with the implications of that. Not least of all, she was the most famous widow of the shipwreck. So she's dealing yeah, with her, media attention. Her life was very, right. I mean, her life was very, I mean, she suffered quite a bit coming yeah. out of that. Her life was very hard afterwards, right? I've only read a little bit about her. And that's the other thing is that I, you know, in terms of the podcast, I mean, everyone you've mentioned could be their own episode. And this is the problem I run into. I mean, I, I will never run out of content as long as my brain is still functioning. You know, I, I, because that would be an incredible episode to do right there is, you know, the Astor's relationship. Mm -hmm. What have we heard about it? How has it been portrayed? What was, you know, if I ever do that, I will contact you. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I would love to talk about it. 
how much is YA and how much is not? Like, what do you think the split on that is? Do you think that the YA books are more popular versus some of the more adult based? Like, tell me a little bit about that because I'm sort of ignorant to that. Yeah. Like, what is the split on that? It's interesting. Young adult as a kind of subgenre gets a lot of kind of flack for being like teen fiction. Like, I think there's a lot of kind of dismissal of teen fiction, which could potentially contribute to Titanic historical fiction not necessarily being as popular because if it's written for teens it can be kind of dismissed as as trivial almost like you know that what teenagers reading what do they know but the, the power of young adult fiction is that it's designed to be engaging for a younger audience it's designed to have some kind of more mature themes that a teenager would be kind of coming into familiarity with without being too kind of dense and literary and really hard to grasp. And I think a lot of people, when they're getting into Titanic, their interest progresses from an interest to a passion around kind of teenage years as they're kind of coming into themselves as a person. Like I know that for me, it went from kind of to a full-blown obsession as a teenager. And so young adult fiction is a brilliant pathway to open up the Titanic story to people who are just getting started. You can kind of think of Titanic fiction as almost like being a young adult like being a teenager it's a gateway to something more like it's a gate teenagehood is a gateway to adulthood titanic fiction is a gateway to the mm -hmm. titanic community i think that young adult fiction and titanic young adult fiction is a brilliant starting point because it's designed to tell you the story and teach you a little bit about the story without forcing a bunch of historical facts down your throat and that's ultimately mm -hmm. the power of fiction is that you are subconsciously learning about it without necessarily having to read a really dense history textbook. Yes. And I think, like I mentioned earlier, I've recently come way more on board with just the whole concept of historical fiction. Admittedly, in years past when I was younger, I think... I think I sometimes looked down on historical mm -hmm. fiction a little bit, especially when I was in grad school and I was really immersed in the academic kind of side of things. And I was, I didn't realize how much I was missing. I mean, in recent years, I have read some historical fiction that does a better job than some academic history books that I've read of really giving a sense of what a certain time and place was and what people, like what people's lives actually were like yeah. in any given time period. And so I think, unfortunately, it's something that I think historical fiction sometimes gets sort of, you know, put in a category with romance novels or whatever it may be. And, and like we said, those have their own merit there. Those shouldn't yeah. be pushed on the sidelines either. Um, but I think sometimes it gets pushed to the side as not being as deserving of praise, yeah. which very recently, that's kind of been one of my pet peeves, because I've come come across a lot that are extremely literary and yeah. extremely high quality. And so I think it's a genre that hopefully is gaining steam and more and more people are realizing, you know, how good it is. I think historical fiction is one of our most underrated kind of educational tools because it's unconsciously educating you on, on a topic, especially for a teenager getting into history or, or you know, engaging with history. Being given a, a dense academic article isn't necessarily always the easiest way to enter into a, an event. It's it's quite difficult to immediately immerse yourself in something like a dense academic article. But with a historical fiction novel, you are being eased into the story. And so I think it's mm -hmm. a brilliant way to get people interested in periods of history, all periods of history, because it's the yeah, perfect, yeah, it work for it's the perfect yeah. kind of gateway drug. Because once you're in, you're never getting out. <laughs> Well, I know I already had the thought. I have a I have a niece who's almost twelve, 
And she, she, I posted about it on my Instagram, but she recently watched the movie for the first time. And she now like she has her uh, Kate and Leo t-shirts and she's, I mean, and you know, she was born in 2009 yeah. and here she is, you know, and, and this movie is however many years, 25 years old now. And it's still like the minute she watched it, it resonated and now she's in and, but I finished the girl who came home and I thought, you know, she could handle this. She's Mm -hmm. almost 12. It's not necessarily full YA, but it's sort of soft enough and gentle enough that I think someone as young as, you know, 11 or 12 yeah. could read it, handle it, and learn a lot because the the history that is in that is, again, it's kind of soft and gentle, and it probably would be a gateway drug, so to speak, to, Definitely. you know, maybe reading some more when she got older. Well, this has been great. I So I do always end on... Well, this is a new thing I've started. I say it always, but this is all new to me. New interviews I've done, I've already done this. I always like to end with just the question of why Titanic. I obviously came about the podcast from a I have a long history with researching the ship, with the movie, with this being such a big part of my life. And so I often think about why we stay obsessed with it, why it's just something that never goes away as a cultural reference, as a metaphor, as an analogy. It's a universal language. I mean, everybody in the world knows Titanic, and it is this ultimate example of the failure of technology, or it's used, like you said, in fiction as the ultimate sort of, you know, parameters for a story. It's got a beginning, a middle, an end. Yeah. So in your opinion, why Titanic? Why is it something that stays in the cultural mind that we obsess over? No pressure. Your answer can be anything, or it can be a little bit more about your personal story, but why Titanic? That's really interesting. And that's definitely a question that I've I've dwelled on like my whole life. It's, it's always been there. And I've had people ask me before, and my immediate response to them is, I don't know. Like for myself personally, why Titanic? I don't know. And I kind of like not knowing. I like that it's a mystery in myself that I love it. I don't really have any reason to love it. And yet I do. And I I love that that's kind of a self kind of mystery, I think, for me. In terms of like why it it sticks in the cultural mindset, I suppose I don't want to say logical reason, but like it was the first kind of big event of the 20th century and it it hooked people. This was pre-World War One pre-Spanish flu, pre-Great Depression, pre all of the kind of major events of the 20th century. And I think it it's kind of a starting point for that really traumatic early 20th century history period. But I think overall, if I had to summarise why it, it sticks with us, I think it has a very mythical air about it. It, it reads almost like, like an ancient Greek myth or like a Bible story. It's this amazingly intricate narrative it's completely impossible I mean largest ship in the world strikes an iceberg and sinks on its first trip like the how ridiculous is that I think first trip you know the more I think about it it's the first trip Mm -hmm. of it all I think you're onto something there too I think it is if Titanic had sunk on its eighth trip or its tenth trip yeah still old you know still horrible tragedy that we probably would still talking about today but I do think in the mythology that part is crucial to yeah. why it is the myth that it is yeah. and and Titanic herself I mean when you kind of get into it Titanic and her sistership Olympic weren't that different like Titanic could have had a normal career as an ocean liner 
and we would there would have been another tragedy that that stuck with us whether it was Lusitania or Empress of Ireland or something like that like Titanic really had she not struck the iceberg and sank wouldn't be that special a ship and I think that that's a really kind of profound realization that just the sheer impossibility of what happened has really kind of stuck in the human psyche and it just it reads like like an impossible narrative it reads like a novel James Cameron once said the Titanic story reads like a great novel and I think that that is just it's like the perfect full stop like it reads like someone has come up with the greatest narrative of all time it it never fails to blow my mind just how kind of mythological it is you'd think someone made this up Mm -hmm. there's no way right this actually happens yeah and it makes perfect sense that morgan robertson wrote futility in 1898 because he sat down and he knew enough about ships and he Mm -hmm. knew enough about maritime life and where the technology was going and he just dreamed up a story and it it's happened to be the story the exact story that happened yeah um and that's why people hold that book up as it must have been some sort of psychic forewarning (laughs) or something and you know but it's interesting to me like I think people want to see that in things yeah I think it is a mythology I my husband has a friend who is a professor of religious studies and in my first episode I used the word mythology and so then he messages my husband and he's like how is she using the word mythology? You know, like, you know for yeah, certain yeah. people, the word mythology has its own connotations and how am I going to explain this? And so, yeah, there's so many levels here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I these episodes could be 17 hours long yeah. because there's so much to unravel. How do you define things? Uh, who are your main characters? Who do you want to look at? What is What themes are most important to you? I, I You know, it, it made me think of one more question for you. So who, since you're someone who studied the ship and you've read so many of these books, who is your number one favorite passenger to research? Who's the most important <clears throat> character to you on board in terms of just a person that intrigues you and you wish you could know more about them or more about what actually happened to them on the boat? Yeah. I'm sorry, ship. I'm getting a lot of trouble <laughs> on the ship. <laughs> right, I forgive you. I do it too. That's actually, it's funny because if you'd asked me like a couple of years ago, I would have said, I have no idea. There's too many. But now there is one that really sticks in my mind. And it is a first class stewardess by the name of Evelyn Marsden. And she survived the sinking. And she was the only Australian woman on Titanic. And she was also the only Australian survivor. There were six Australians on board and she was the only Australian survivor and the only Australian woman. And like we were saying before, one of my favourite groups is this is the female crew. So she kind of ticks several boxes in terms of she's a, a stewardess and she's Australian. And so I, I don't know whether it's a kind of a kinship thing, but her story just, it just sticks out in my mind when I think of the Titanic story. And she, I feel like she has this kind of quintessential, like Australian girl, I suppose, if you can call it a stereotype like that. Like she grew up in in South Australia. She was an equestrian. She learned to row as a teenager. So she's a very outdoorsy kind of outgoing Australian girl, I guess. And uh, her story, I, I think, because it's a familiar background, has always resonated with me. She was a nurse. She trained as a nurse here in Melbourne, where I am, was a stewardess on Titanic and on Carpathia. She was helping out those who were injured because she was a trained nurse. She came back to Australia after Titanic later in 1912 and continued working as a nurse here. And her husband was a doctor, I believe, and they lived up in, in Sydney and 
you know, she lived the rest of her life here and died here. But on her grave, she's got Titanic survivor. So it kind of harks back to that idea of tumultuous life before and after, but she's known as a Titanic survivor for being on board for a week, less than a week. But she, I think, if I had to choose one person that, if I could go back in time and speak to anyone who was on the Titanic, I would love to speak to her and just just talk to her about it. I'll have to look into her. I didn't know anything about her. Maybe I should do an episode on her. Well, this has been lovely. I So I would love for people to know where to find you. So if you want to just kind of say like where they can find your blog, you know, what your handle is on Instagram, just kind of where people can find you so they can see your book reviews, see that. I mean, you, you have great content. I mean, your blog is polished. The content <laughs> is excellent. So I really want to direct people to that. So yeah, definitely yeah. plug all. So my Instagram is at the Titanic Girl blog. And my website is www.thetitanicgirl.com. So pretty, pretty similar. Um, I'm mostly, mostly active on Instagram. However, I am planning on now that the semester's finished, the university semester's finished, I'm planning on kind of bringing the blog back and reinvigorating it because I haven't posted on the blog itself in a while, but that's coming back very soon, hopefully. Yeah. And there's a bad, I mean, anyone who's new to it can read. There's all of my old posts still there. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. they're really wonderful. And your Instagram is wonderful because it's, it's a great go-to for, you know, what books are new, kind of categorizing some of the books, like for people that want to jump in and read it. I don't know. It's great. It's a great starting point. People can sort of see in this great, I think Instagram is great for books because you can kind of see the layout, like the way that you do it is so interesting with the covers and the colors and kind of coordinating and curating that is wonderful. But this has been absolutely lovely. I really appreciate you taking the time to you know, sit down and talk this much with me. And like I said, this is a corner of the Titanic world. I am not as familiar with, so I'm still learning and I'm planning to do some more reading and, you know, who knows, maybe down the line, we can talk again after, you know, maybe we can do some sort of book club, maybe Definitely. We can do like some sort of series down the line where some of the female Titanic community, we all read the same book and then we can meet up and do this kind of session. That would be really fun. Absolutely. I'm so in. Count me in. (laughs) 